Before the show, a quick word from our sponsor. Stacks 2.0. They're no longer block stacks. It's now the Stacks 2.0 blockchain. And they're really orienting around Bitcoin, right? So the whole idea is it's a blockchain. They have a proof of transfer, POX, and you peg in Bitcoin and Bitcoin is the money on the blockchain. They also have a governance and staking token to support that blockchain, STX, but you don't need that token to use the blockchain. And that blockchain, it takes on a lot of the features that you know you can't build directly into the Bitcoin blockchain, things that other altcoin chains are trying to do, and it brings it to a Bitcoin-denominated world. So I think that the world is going to start denominating in Bitcoin, and the closer and more trustless you can get to using Bitcoin, the, the more people are going to want to use those applications. So it's exciting to see what Blockstacks is doing here and them committing to Bitcoin. We're starting to really see the narrative of Bitcoin, not blockchain, like their marketing, their branding is all about, we are part of Bitcoin. We're leveraging the most important, the most prevalent blockchain and Bitcoin is money on our blockchain. So I like the turn of directions. Go check out stacks2.com. So that's S-T-A-C-K-S-2, the number two.com and learn more if you're, especially if you're a developer. But if you want to just poke around and see their blockchain-based decentralized apps and DeFi stuff, again, they're doing that all on the Stacks2 blockchain. Live from Utrecht, this is the Van Wurdem Shows Nedo. Hello. Episode 24. That's right. And in episode 24, Shorts, we're going to discuss Bitcoin Core 21. Hooray. Well, 0.21. We're still in the age of the zero point releases. Yes, which is ending now. Probably, yes. That's what I understand. The next one, the, yeah, so the next 22 one, will actually be Bitcoin Core 22. That's what it says in the master branch right now. But, you know, until there's a release, somebody could come out and, you know, change it back. All right. Well, but, anyways. But I guess it's going to be, yeah, 22 will be the next version. Yeah. So this one is still called Bitcoin Core 0.21. Yep. And it was released, when was it? Exactly a week ago when we're recording? No, less than a week ago. Anyways, last week. And we're going to discuss this new release and the new features in this new release. Yeah, there's some very cool features in there. It's a big release. There's a lot of new stuff in here. Yeah, and we're going to refer back to some earlier episodes where we talk about either the specific feature or at least sort of the general area that this feature touches. Yeah, we already discussed some of it. So what we're going to do for this episode is we're just going to take the release notes and kind of discuss each new feature, each notable new feature point by point for the most interesting ones. That's right. And in the show notes, you can find the full release notes, which are very long. Let's start. Are, right. you, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. So first point. Yeah. So the first change, the mempool, right? It used to be that when you have a Bitcoin Core wallet, you would be broadcasting transactions from your wallet. And then after 15 seconds or so, you would be broadcasting transactions from the wallet. And you would just keep broadcasting it to your peers nearby. Isn't it 15 minutes? Yeah, 15 minutes. That's yeah. right. So it would very frequently broadcast its own transactions because the wallet really wants to make sure that the rest of the world hears about its transactions. The problem with that... Until it's included in a block, of course. Exactly. And the problem with that is it's not very good for privacy. Because you, if you can pinpoint which node is constantly repeating a transaction, then that suggests that that's the node that created it. Yeah, it makes it very obvious which addresses which inputs 
originate from which node which is bad for privacy because a node can be tied to an ip address and an ip address to an identity and so forth exactly so the long-term goal here which has not been achieved in this specific change but we always do little micro steps Mm -hmm. the long-term goal is to get to a place where the node will just treat its own transactions its own wallet transactions just like it would transactions from another peer so it will not prioritize its own transactions and there's some downside to that because, you know, you have to keep your wallet open probably a little bit longer to make sure that it does get broadcast. But but yeah, then it would be indistinguishable. So I think one of the, the long-term goals is to say we're going to wait until the wallet transaction fee is close to what it would be for the next block, right? Because you can order transactions by fee. Yeah, I, f- I think what you're trying to say is that right now this re- rebroadcasting is done blindly. While in the future, the plan is to actually see if the transaction should have been included in a block by now based on the fees. And yeah. only if that's not the case, will it rebroadcast the transaction. And it will do so for any transaction the node has seen, not just for its own transactions. Exactly. And this also creates a better separation between, because the you know Bitcoin Core is a node, which has a mempool, and it's a wallet. And you know this dealing with mempools should be done by the node and it shouldn't be done by the wallet. So there's a lot of process separation going on under the hood there. Yeah, but this, what we're describing right now is actually not included in Bitcoin Core 21 right now. We've seen one micro step towards this in Bitcoin Core 21. Yeah. So what is this micro step? If I understand correctly, the micro step is that it's going to broadcast it once a day instead of every 15 minutes. I think that's right. It, It just does it less often. So there's a bigger chance it will have been included in a block by then, which means it's never going to rebroadcast. And you need to spy on a node a lot longer. Yeah, exactly. So it's a benefit for privacy. Yeah, I would say so. And it's a small step towards a bigger plan. Yeah. Okay, next one. Tor version free support. Oh, we should mention, as far as the mempool stuff, we've discussed this in episode 19 in more detail for listeners who want to go back couple of episodes and hear more about this. Yeah. Okay, next point is Tor version free support. Yeah, which we talked about in episode 13. In Correct. quite a bit of detail. So yeah. the quick version is Tor, you know, has been improved. There's a version 3. Bitcoin Core now uses that. That's the very short version. Yes. And I think that's good enough for now. So yeah, episode 13 for anyone who wants to hear more. Right, because this also includes a new way to gossip addresses. So that's, you know, that's actually a bigger change. Yeah, which we also. Discussed. I mean, the the important thing is that I think a year from now, if I'm if I'm recalling correctly, if you want to use Tor in a year from now, you actually do need to have this version free support, right? That's also my understanding. Yeah, because yeah. Tor is still centralized, so there's somebody in charge who can say, okay, next year you can no longer use version two. Right. So now Bitcoin Core supports version three, which means it's compatible with Bits with Tor even a year from now. That's right. Okay, point three. Anchors. It's a new file, but more importantly, we talked in episode 17 and 18 about Eclipse attacks, mm-hmm. how a node can be sort of isolated from the rest of the network. And one of the countermeasures that we talked about back then is that when the node restarts, it should remember at least some of the nodes it was previously connected to. And that's what these anchor connections are. So before your node shuts down, it saves, or I guess it regularly saves two of the nodes that it's connected to currently, namely nodes that it's only exchanging blocks with, so very low bandwidth. And then when it starts up, it's going to read that file and it's going to connect to them again. 
And we explain a lot more about that in those episodes. Yeah, I think especially episode 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but both 17 and 18. I think most of it, most of this specific change was in episode 17. Okay. So anyway, so this was included in Bitcoin Core 21 as well. That's right. So Eclipse attacks are now harder to pull off against Bitcoin Core 21 nodes. Yes. Nice. All right. Next point. The next point is BIP157, also known as neutrino filters. Mm-hmm. We have not talked about that yet, so we can briefly explain it. Yeah. There, there are lots of mobile wallets out there, especially for Lightning, that don't want to download the entire blockchain. Yeah, or just light wallets in general. They don't have to be mobile, just something that doesn't download and verify the entire blockchain. Yeah, though I think the number of excuses you have to run a light wallet outside of a mobile situation are reduced. I mean, a lot of people don't feel like waiting for two days for the the whole thing to sync. Yeah, yeah, that's true, for the initial experience. I mean, it's a bad idea, or, you know, definitely not preferable, but that would be the reason. Yeah. So what these filters do is they, instead of you, instead of downloading every block, you download these filters, which are much smaller than a block, and then you can take your own list of addresses and run your own list of addresses against that filter. And the filter will tell you whether or not there's something in the block pertaining to your addresses. Yeah, or at least possibly. Yeah, there can be some false positives. Yeah. So you might get a list of a thousand blocks that you need to download. And maybe of those thousand blocks, only a hundred actually contain your transactions. But that's better than downloading all six hundred sixty-six thousand six hundred sixty-six <laughs> plus blocks. Yes. Yeah. We we made that milestone this week. Yeah. Exactly. That's why you remember the exact number. Precisely. It's very hard to remember. <laughs> there are you know lots of trade-offs when it comes to these filters, so I think we should go into that for another episode. It's not enforced by consensus, so you're kind of trusting that the list is real. Mm-hmm. Although you know if you Let's say the list gives you a bunch of nonsense results and you start downloading those blocks and you don't see what you're expecting. Well, then you know that whoever gave you those filters was lying to you, but it, it gets a little complicated. So we'll talk about that some other time, but it's there and it was already used in the wild a lot, especially by the mobile lightning wallets. So, so far there was only specialized nodes that would serve that, usually running BTCD. And now, you know, every Bitcoin Core wallet can do it if, yeah, you, if you turn it on. Right, yeah. So just to be clear, the thing that's new in this Bitcoin Core 21 release, I'm just going to call it Bitcoin Core 21, not okay, not Bitcoin Core 0.21. Anyways, what's new here is that I think previous Bitcoin Core release could already create the filter. And now in this Bitcoin Core release, it can share it over, I guess, the peer-to-peer network, right? That's correct, yes. That's what's new. Yeah, the filter has been around there. So as usual, you know, you have this filter, but you can't really use it. And now you can use it. Next one? Yeah, so we'll we'll get back to this in another episode, I think. This is the short version of it. Next point. Signet. Signet. Which we discussed in episode 10. Correct. In great detail. But the very short version is, it is like testnet, but heavily centralized. And everybody can make their own if you want to. And it's awesome. Yeah, what it does is it it creates a Bitcoin blockchain in a way, just like Testnet is just sort of a copy of the Bitcoin blockchain. Same rules and same things apply. It's just it's just there for developers to test new stuff on, to test new you know software on, without the risk of losing coins if there are bugs and these kinds of things. The problem with the Testnet is that. Because it's so similar to the Bitcoin blockchain, it, it it depends on hash power, but without any economic incentives to actually keep the way secure or stable in any way, 
the test net can be very insecure or no not ins- well insecure and more importantly unstable yeah unstable especially because there might not be any blocks and then after 20 minutes there's like lots of blocks yeah it's it's just a mess you can have very large reorgs it's not it's not fun to develop against it and although when you develop software you should make it very robust you 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 have to deal with edge cases that really make no sense on on the real Bitcoin network. So you're kind of wasting your time. Right. So yeah, SIGNET is like a testnet, except that Bitcoin blocks need a valid signature. That's right. From whoever is running the SIGNET. And that person is making sure that the test network is somewhat stable. Yeah. So it's completely insecure. This is not how you want to design actual Bitcoin because it depends on the trusted third party. But because it's just for testing anyways, it's fine. Yeah, and... And although, you know, there's just two people who can sign it, that doesn't really matter because everybody can make their own signet with it, their own rules. And you can have a 15 out of 15 multisig or you can make it, everybody can sign it. It's probably a bad idea. But, you know, the centralization part is solved by just having as many as you want. And it's worth nothing, so. So this was included in Bitcoin Core 21. What does that mean exactly to have it included in Bitcoin Core 21? Well, it means that you can start Bitcoin Core with a dash signet just like you can start it with dash testnet and your icon will have a nice different color. And there's a faucet out there that you can go to and you can get signet coins, which you get by the dozen, I think. So it's nice. Yeah, you can use it. Yeah. And we'll, we'll go back to it again in the, well, I guess we can skip to that item now because it makes sense. Because the other thing that's included is Taproot. Right. Yeah. Okay. And Taproot is active on signet. Yeah. So we now have Taproot on signet. That's right. Obviously, this is meaningless for regular users. Users, this is just for developers, just for testing their software. Exactly. But it's the the main plan was to have the Taproot code inside of Bitcoin Core, unactivated, but just there, so people can find bugs in it and can play with it. Which is also the case. It's yeah. in there now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's nice because normally you would have the code of a software in there, and you could theoretically play with it, but it's not very clear how you would do that. But now it's very clear because you can use it on Signet. And the nice thing about Signet is that the rules can be changed anytime because there's, you know, two miners that can centralize, decide to just enforce different taproot rules if the taproot spec is changed. Right. Because it's not final until it's live. Yeah, well, it's kind of final, right? The idea is that from here on out, it shouldn't be changed anymore, I think. I guess that's that's why it's included in the code in the first place. Yeah, I think you'd see it as a release candidate. Right. Yeah, because, so because even if Taproot activates on mainnet in the future with a new version of Bitcoin Core, this old version of Bitcoin Core won't do anything with that. Right. Yeah. So even if the rules change now, there's no problem with your 0.21 node. It will not get confused if Taproot changes. Of course, hopefully it doesn't. Yeah. Sure. But about that, so yeah, the Taproot code is included in Bitcoin Core 21. Uh, this also means that probably the next minor version of bitcoin core which would be bitcoin core 21.1 well bitcoin core 0.21.1 will have the actual activation logic for taproot hopefully yeah if all goes well that's kind of the plan right i mean yeah i think that's the that's the tradition but you know there's no centralized management team that decides what the plan is so it it, it is what may happen but yeah, let's just say that's the plan. That's the thing with, with an anarchistic system, right? It's it's what we did the last time, but nobody can force any of the volunteers and developers to do it again until it's been done. Isn't it time for you to take charge, Shot? No. 
<laughs> I'm I'm assuming that there will be a minor release which has a Taproot activation in it. I'm so that's going to be my assumption. I'm optimistic, but I have not followed any of the... You know, we discussed Taproot activation possibilities in episode three, I believe, and Taproot itself in episode two or the other way around. Right, yep. And I have not followed the news since then when it comes to activation, so I guess I'll just see when it activates. Yeah, the, the more, more on that discussion indeed in uh, episode three and Taproot itself in episode two. All right, next point. Yeah, so we'll jump back in our little queue to BIP339, Witness Transaction ID Relay, or WTX ID. So here's the thing. A long, long time ago, before there was SegWit, transactions had a hash. And this hash represented you know, the entire transaction. But... It was a transaction ID. Exactly. Yeah. But then we uh, created SegWit. And SegWit added data to the transaction. But the identifiers that we use for transactions are still based on what is in the transaction minus all the SegWit stuff. This is because old nodes don't don't see the SegWit stuff. Yeah, this was kind of why SegWit worked to solve malleability. Exactly. Because so previously, the, a transaction, before SegWit, the transaction had all the transaction details, how many Bitcoins are involved, where they go in, plus the signature, and this was all hashed, and this hash was a transaction ID. However, it turned out that different, slightly different signatures could all be valid, and therefore a signature could be changed in flight, for example. You, you send a transaction to the network, someone on that network slightly changes the signature, the transaction is still valid, but all of a sudden the transaction ID changed because the hash changed because the signature changed. Yeah. So to solve that, this was a problem for things like Lightning. So to solve this, SegWit separated the transaction details from the signature and the transaction details were still hashed to create the transaction ID and the signature was put in a separate part of a block, SegWit part of the block, mm -hmm. and therefore malleability was solved. That's right. But this meant that the signature was not part of the transaction ID at all. That's right. And that makes a lot of sense when you, for example, have something like Lightning or any sort of escrow system where you pre-sign a transaction to release coins, you want to make sure that the transactions go in. And so the, the transaction that releases the coins refers to the transaction that puts the coins in there. So you don't want somebody to be able to change that transaction that goes in, because then you suddenly don't have a release transaction anymore and your coins are held hostage. So, so what's this change now? So what this changes is not about how the consensus works, but it's how transactions are relayed between nodes. Mm -hmm. So you know when a node talks to another node that says, hey, here's a bunch of transaction IDs. Would you like the whole transaction for this thing? And that was still ref that's still referring to this pre-sequid transaction hash, also the on-chain transaction hash. But this new change lets you gossip these transactions using the witness transaction ID, which does include the signature, I believe. Now, I don't know why that's useful, to be honest, but because I haven't read up on what exactly the BIP is saying. I'm just saying that you can now gossip transactions based on including the witness, which I guess could have some benefit. Does it have something to do with potentially sharing a transaction with an invalid signature and therefore... That, that's my theory, that because I should have read it, but my guess is that indeed you would you know, send, send another node a transaction hash and they would ask for the transaction and you would give it a fake transaction because you would just add your own signature to it and it would just be nonsense. 
And then the other node would say, okay, this transaction is dumb. I'm just going to ignore that moving forward. And then another node would give the real one, but but this node you know, is now rejecting it because it's already seen it and it thought it was fake. Mm-hmm. So you want to prevent that. Right. And that's what this new change might solve is your speculation, but, is speculation. But neither of us is actually sure because we didn't read the BIP. That's right. Read, <laughs> read, read, read the BIP, fellows. I also know this was and done... And it's, it's BIP, which one is it? 339. Yes. I also know this was done before Taproot because it has some sort of utility there too. Right. All right. Next item. Next item is Taproot, which we've already covered. So then the next item is a bunch of RPC changes. That's right. If you look at the release nodes, a lot of changes are about the RPC. And we're not going to mention them because they're not that interesting. RPC stands for Remote Procedure Call. Yes. What does that mean, actually, Short? It basically means if you're running a Bitcoin node, then you can issue commands to it. And, you know, if you're a desktop user, you would just click on buttons. But if you're in the command line... Well, you would type Bitcoin Cli and then some command. But mm-hmm. if you are on the network, you're you know you you probably want to send some JSON to it and get some JSON back from it over the network. Mm-hmm. And that is that's what these RPC calls are for. So you can send it commands over the network and get a response back. Right. And if you've built some sort of complicated server, you want to make sure nothing breaks. And Bitcoin Core is always very careful. It tries not to make breaking changes in that RPC. So, for example, a situation you might be in is you run a block explorer of some sort and you have one little server machine that has a Bitcoin full node on it. And we'll we'll get to that actually with the ZMQ explanation, but I guess we'll transition to that. So you'll have one node that runs Bitcoin Core on it and another that runs a database and another that runs the website because usually, you know, they try to split all these things up. So the web server might ask the node questions like what is the current block height or you know what's in your mempool that that's done via rpc that might or it might say send a transaction to this person that's also done via rpc so that's all scripts and code so you want to make sure that your code is still doing what you think it's doing when you upgrade the node mm-hmm. but which brings us to the next point zero mq feature improvement so you can read in, uh, if you find this interesting, you can read in the release note exactly what. Is that one of the RPC changes? Well, 0MQ is not actually RPC, but it's also a way to communicate. Okay. So with RPC, you are you have the Bitcoin node is listening, and you send a command to it, and you get a response back. That's how RPC works. But 0MQ is push-based. So what you're doing is the Bitcoin node is constantly broadcasting and you can listen to that broadcast through a channel and so the broadcast could be every new block so then you're listening to a certain channel and you get the block as soon as the node sees it Mm -hmm. or you can listen to transactions or i believe you can even listen to transactions at a certain address Mm -hmm. this might be useful if you have a block explorer with a live page you know where you're looking at an address and then the notes sees a new transaction on that address it sends a message to your zmq to the web server, and the web server sends a WebSocket message to the browser so your browser updates without having to hit the refresh button, something like that. Okay. So that's that's nice for people who care about that. Next item. Okay, yep. There is a new send RPC by yours truly, which is cool. It, it basically, if you want to send coins through the command line, I mean, you can do it with the graphical interface, but if you're, you know, the cool kids want to do it with the command line, it's it's very tedious. You know, when the first version of Bitcoin Core came out, 
when it wasn't even Bitcoin Core. I think you just had a command called send to address and you gave it an address and an amount and that was it. Mm -hmm. And that's still out there. But the problem is that command got expanded, but it doesn't have all the features you may want. And at the same time, there there were commands to create PSBTs that we talked about in an earlier episode. Those commands Partially were very, signed Bitcoin transactions. Exactly. And those were very powerful. You could do all sorts of cool things to your transaction, including coin selection, for example, through the command line. But it was very tedious because if you want to make a PSBT, then you have to make it and then sign it and then finalize it and do a bunch of things. So the problem was you had a very simple way to send coins with the very old Satoshi time RPC methods, just sent to an address, but you couldn't configure it. Or you had a super powerful method that was extremely hard to use. And so the new send RPC is easier to use and powerful. And you made this. Yes, and it's been improved since. Thank you, Shorts. Hopefully, you're welcome. <laughs> it's it's marked experimental, so if, if you... I'm not one of the cool kids anyways, I just used Dewey. Well, it's especially useful if you're if you're experimenting with newer features like hardware wallet integration and stuff. Then, then you, you want to experiment on the command line and then hopefully later do it in the GUI. How is that going to, to take a side path? What's, what's going on with hardware integration, hardware wallet integration? It's very slow. Yeah. So I think it, I gave a presentation in 2019 or something. In London? Yeah, and Andrew Chow's done it as well. Yeah. And I mean, the final picture we thought would be here now, or at least I was hoping for, but it's not. But a lot of things have been done. So part of the hardware wallet project was to get PSPT support. Mm-hmm. Well, that's pretty much done. Mm-hmm. Part of it was descriptor wallets, which we'll get to next. So that's been done. And the thing I've been working on as a work in progress is a expansion of this send command in RPC that will let you talk to a hardware wallet directly from mm-hmm. the command line. And the second one is a graphical interface around that. Right. And those those pull requests exist. They get a little bit of review, but they're not moving forward very quickly. Eventually it might happen. But it's still but moving. The, it's still moving. And also there are great other solutions out there. So there's the Spectre open source project, which just runs a little web server on your own computer and then it magically talks to the RPC again with these RPC calls that we talked mm-hmm. about. And it creates wallets and it's it's very, very nice, very slick. We wouldn't be able to get it that slick. Right. But if you can get more support inside of Bitcoin Core, it means fewer software that you need to download from places that you then need to trust. Exactly. So there, there is something to be said for continuing this. All right, next point. The next point is called experimental descriptor wallets and SQLite support. So right. Two things. Mm-hmm. So... Descriptor wallets, I don't think we've talked about that yet. I don't think so. So the general idea is that when Bitcoin Core started, it was just a single address type, paid a public key. I think we did discuss that. And then there was a new address format, paid a public key hash. And so that was added to the wallet. And then SegWit came along and paid a script hash came along. And now there's, the wallet is just a giant mess of, of backwards compatible things. Right. Code that nobody understands. And well, Andrew Chow has been at work at cleaning that up. And one of the things that was added was the idea of the descriptor wallet. The mm-hmm. descriptor is something invented by uh, SIPA. And the idea there is that you, well, describe what is in the wallet. So you, you literally just write out, you start with this master key, and then you take the first derivation, you know, within BIP42, and you take the second derivation or whatever, and then it's slash star. And then if you write down those just those descriptors, you can recover your addresses. Yeah. So this could be, for example, you have a bunch of multi-sig addresses, and these are described as multi-sig addresses. And then yes. your hardware wallet addresses, and then your 
plane addresses or whatever. And these are yeah. sort of categorized. You can easily categorize your different UTXOs, your different coins. Yeah, so for a hardware wallet, it's a nice example. Usually a hardware wallet will give you an XPUB. You know, if you plug it in, it, it can spit out an XPUB, and an XPUB is a way to derive multiple addresses. Mm -hmm. And so a multi-sig address would We be did discuss that in, I think, one of the first episodes. I don't have the number okay. in front of me. XPUBs. Yeah, could be. And basically, you can say, okay, here's a multi-sig address consisting of these three XPUBs, and then what you need to do to these XPUBs to get the individual addresses. So you can describe very complicated wallets. And if we add Miniscript support in the future, you can describe even more wildly complicated wallets that way. Right. So what's up with SQLite? SQLite is a new database format. So the, the wallet itself is just a bunch of records, essentially. And right now it's sitting in Berkeley DB version 4, which is a 10-year-old unmaintained piece of software, mm -hmm. which, you know, it's 10 years old and unmaintained. So that's a problem. And SQLite is a bit more modern. It's still being maintained. And... It's very short, so the total code for SQLite is not that large to review. And it is designed to be backwards and forwards compatible in sane ways. So if a new version of SQLite comes out, you have pretty strong guarantees that it's still going to work. And that if you, know, if you save something in the new wallet, it's also going to work in, the old, in an old version. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. So if you upgrade to Bitcoin Core 21, you're, there's nothing happens. Nothing interesting. No, so no, nothing worrisome happens. No, if you had, if you already have a wallet, it is not converted to descriptor wallets. It is not converted to SQLite. Nothing happens. There are manual commands that you, if you like to, you can do that. Mm -hmm. But we still consider both of these things somewhat experimental. Right. So you probably don't want to do that. But oh. the goal in the future is that new wallets will be descriptor wallets and will be stored using the SQLite database, and then you know, more far into the future, there'll be an automatic migration tool or like at least some button that says, you know, you probably want to migrate this. Right. And then even further into the future, when you start it up, it'll say, okay, I'm not going to start up. Please migrate the wallet first using this tool or something. Right. And then later on, it's like, uh, please download an older version. <laughs> now, I guess there'll always be a conversion tool because, you know, you want to be... Nice. I like my backwards compatibility, sure. Please keep that for me. Yeah, I guess it depends on how horrendous it is to keep all that old code around. But I guess one thing we might end up doing is write just just the code that's necessary to read one of those old Berkeley databases, no longer to be able to write it. So you wouldn't need the whole library. You know, we talked about libraries. We would just need enough to be able to read it. Right. Yeah, but that's, you know, years and years probably. I think we've made it to our last point. Yes. So it's, it's a small one. Yeah. At what the RPC it? level... You can now specify your fee in Satoshi per byte. Finally. Yes. Yeah, so it used to be Satoshi per kilobyte or BTC per kilobyte, some weird something, unit. Something no one else used. Yeah, exactly. Because now all the websites will use Satoshi per byte. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the, the, the annoying thing about the standard that it was using before is if you type one, because you intended one Satoshi per byte, you're actually saying, I don't know, a thousand Satoshi per byte or right. some like, really obscene number that would be very expensive if you don't know what you're doing yeah there is actually protection against that since a few years so that's changed to make it more consistent with the rest of the bitcoin ecosystem yeah and that's not yet in the graphical interface but that's typically the next step right so yeah i noticed there were like 140 contributors to this release something like that 
quite possible maybe uh, one under 30 one under 40 something uh, around that number because we talked about the highlights but if you look at the actual release notes and then at the bottom there are so mm. many super small changes that could be an individual contributor that just comes by yeah i just wanted to mention thank you to all these 130 or 40 or whatever it was yeah, contributors sure. thanks to everyone thanks to you as well shores thank you you're one of them what else how do people upgrade what do people do Go to bitcoincore.org and download it and then do all the checks to make sure that you've got the real thing. Yeah, like the signature verification stuff and these these kinds of... Well, I guess that's the main thing. Yes. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, and that, nothing else, right? So like like we mentioned, this Berkeley DB to SQLite, that's unnecessary. You don't need to re-download blocks or anything like that. It's just Yeah, as a user, you just download the new version and life continues. Nice. I like that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I like life to continue. All right, then. Thank you for listening to the Van Weerdum Shores NATO. There you go. 